0: Bonjour, hello, and welcome to Close Up on Canada, the podcast from the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. I'm your host, Daniel Bélan. This season, we are talking about immigration policy in Canada and beyond. Immigration has always been a key aspect of Canadian economic and social life, and thinking about immigration policy in a changing world is a priority. Our guests this season are experts in the field and will be giving us insight into the conversations happening now when it comes to immigration policy in Canada and abroad. In addition to this podcast, the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada will be hosting a two-day conference focused on immigration policy in Canada this fall on October 27 and 28 at the Sofitel Hotel in Montreal. The conference will feature keynotes and roundtables that address broad themes in immigration policy relevant to informed citizens, community leaders, journalists, policymakers, researchers, and students. For more information and to register for this event, please visit misc. /2022 conference. Today we are talking about Canadian and US immigration policy. How the two countries differ, where they overlap, and what they can learn from each other. We are pleased to be joined today by Irene Bloomrad, a professor of sociology and the Thomas Garden Barnes Chair of Canadian Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. She is also the founding director of the Berkeley Interdisciplinary Migration Initiative and co-directs the Boundaries, Membership, and Belonging program at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. In 2014 and 2015, she served as a member of the U.S. National Academies of Sciences Committee reporting on the integration of immigrants into American society. She studies how immigrants become incorporated into political communities and the consequences of their presence on politics and understandings of membership. Hello, Irene, and thank you for joining us today. To start off, could you please tell us a bit about how you came uh, to study immigration and corporation and migration politics?
1: Yeah, of course. You know, often I think we study things that are personally relevant and resonant with our lives. And in my case, I am an immigrant multiple times. I was born in Europe, we immigrated to Canada, and then subsequently I've immigrated again to the United States. In terms of my scholarly work on immigration, as you know, I did my undergrad at McGill and I started my studies in political science, and I had an interest in international relations with the idea of having a career in the foreign service. The classes I found most interesting were focused on immigration, social movements, and politics. And you know, I remember some of those comparative politics classes and to how interesting I found the, the work and, and the debates we had about European countries, which we having and, and seeing for the first time the rise of anti-immigrant political parties. This would have been back in, in the early 1990s. But Canada wasn't, and Canada had many more immigrants and, and a much higher proportion of immigrants than these European countries. And so I was wondering, you know, why is it that in some places immigration becomes a hot button issue, but in other places um, it's more sort of normal politics? And as an immigrant, I was also really interested in how immigrants could have voice in politics, um, how they could become citizens, participate in electoral politics, maybe participate in a peaceful protest. And so after I did my my bachelor's degree at McGill, I continued at the university and I did a one-year research MA, but this time in sociology, because at least at that time, um, sociology seemed more open to my interests in immigration and social movements. And then I hit a fork in the road. Um, I was being considered for a job in Canada's foreign service, as I initially wanted to do. But I was also admitted to Harvard's PhD program in sociology. And then for a variety of personal reasons, I chose the academic path. And when I was at Harvard, I continued the study of the political incorporation of immigrants in the U.S. and Canada and that's what I do. I, I just love studying immigration. It's relevant personally, it's relevant politically, and it's fascinating from an academic point of view.
0: So we are here in Canada and you're in the United States. We are talking about uh, the two countries in terms of uh, immigration policy. So what can Canada learn from the U.S. when it comes to immigration policy? And what can the U.S., if you take the reverse path, learn from Canada?
1: So I think Canadian policymakers and the Canadian public can learn quite a bit from the United States in terms of some of the problems and challenges of temporary worker programs. Canada's reliance on temporary worker programs and and sort of the expansion of temporary worker programs has been a real issue over the last 10 or 20 years. And all of the temporary worker programs that have occurred in the past in sort of rich industrialized countries, notably the United States, but also other countries like Germany, the the assumption is always that the temporary migrants will go home. And the reality is that when those temporary migrant programs end, workers don't necessarily go home, and if they don't go home, but their visa lapses, then you have an issue of dealing with an undocumented population in your country, which raises all kinds of issues about inclusion exploitation. In the US case, during World War II, the United States started a program that's colloquially known as the Bracero Program, which allowed hundreds of thousands of Mexican workers, primarily, but also some workers from the Caribbean, to come to the United States and work on farms and construction on the railroads. And then in the mid 1960s, the program was abruptly ended. But the economic reasons for those workers didn't change. Farmers still needed them to pick the crops. Uh, Businesses were still reliant on them. And that is one of the foundation stones for the fact that the United States currently has somewhere between 10 to 12 million undocumented people. And I think you see some of these potential problems in the Canadian case. I was just reading a week or so ago, about a raid by immigration officials in Canada on some Banff area hotels, the Rocky Mountains and and sort of that area has been really short staffed in terms of, um, you know, all of the problems with COVID and staffing the service industry in particular. And so undocumented people apparently have been filling jobs in Alberta. And now immigration is returning those people home, which is maybe a short-term solution, but it certainly raises some moral questions and our ethical obligations to these people who had been working in Canada and were clearly needed on the business side. So I think Canada really needs to look at the mistakes the United States has made on temporary workers and try to think about a better way forward. Now, you had also asked about what can Canada teach the United States? Um, and I would say that you know a lot of experts outside of Canada, in the United States and elsewhere, look at the Canadian program, and they say that one of the reasons the Canadian immigration program works really quite well is because of its focus on economic selection. So as many listeners might know, migration policy is usually focused on choosing immigrants based on one of three things. Either they are chosen because they are seen as being economic contributors to a country, or they're chosen because they have family ties to people already in the country. Maybe uh, they married somebody who who lives in the country, or they are a sibling or a, a parent of someone in the country. Or the other way to come is through humanitarian considerations like refugee flows. The Canadian system, it really puts the majority of the emphasis on economic selection. The United States emphasizes family, so two thirds, sometimes up to three quarters of legal permanent residents in the United States get their visas because of family connection. And so often policymakers look to Canada and will say, um, you know, we should we should adopt the Canadian point system. One of the things that I would want American policymakers to know is that I think the Canadian system is also successful for a number of other reasons. It's not just selecting immigrants, it's also the reception given to immigrants and the language and the political and social context in which immigrant reception happens. So I think that in the Canadian context, most political leaders, whether you're at the federal, the provincial or the local level, have quite inclusive political discourse about immigrants. People might raise some questions about immigrant selection. There might be some important policy issues, but generally speaking, many political leaders in Canada see the value in immigrants and see value in seeing them as new Canadians, You know, people who are going to be here for the long haul. And that sets up a context and a culture of inclusion that I think at least over the last five, 10 years in the United States has really not been as evident. And, and that makes people feel alienated alone. It does not necessarily build good ties. It creates divisions. And so I do think that these sort of soft uh, soft discourse, soft power of the Canadian immigration system is really important. And then the second thing I would really underscore, and I've, I've written about this previously, is that the United States does not have an integration policy at the federal level. The attitude in the United States is that you're gonna pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's a ground up kind of attitude. And for those people with resources, luck, um, they can be very, very successful. Like you, you just need to look at Silicon Valley just down the road from where I live and you see immigrants who have been wildly successful on an economic level, you know, in IPOs, big tech companies, et cetera. But at the same time, if you let people sort of figure it out by themselves, those who face hardship, those who just have bad luck, those who need a little bit of a helping hand to learn the language or to make their skills legible to a very different labor market, they're left to fend for themselves. And the problem of course, is you really want everyone to succeed. And so I think even though Canada has room for improvement on its integration front, the support that different levels of government have given for language training, for citizenship classes, for public private partnerships around refugee resettlement, all of these joint government civil society initiatives, that's another, I think sometimes hidden, part of the Canadian immigration success story. So if, if I were to um, advise US policymakers, I would say you cannot only talk about entry policy, immigration policy, you must also include integration policy.
0: So when we talk about, you know, um, Canyon and, and, and uh, U.S. politics, uh, we often focus on the differences uh, between the two countries. That's the case when uh, we discuss immigration. We just mentioned, you mentioned uh, the presence of a point system in, in Canada and its absence in the U.S. and so forth. But what are the similarities between the two countries when we talk about immigration policy?
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Danielle, that people sometimes overstate the differences between the two countries and ignore a lot of the similarities. And you know, one similarity is public opinion. It is the case that in general, Canadians are more positive about immigration, especially as an economic growth policy as compared to say Americans. However, if you start asking questions about immigrant diversity, worries about cultural change, worries about potential frictions between people of different religious communities, then actually pretty similar proportions of Canadians and Americans express worry about immigrants changing values or culture in the country. Um, and some of them have very strong nativist concerns. So you know, upwards of about a third of the population in the two countries really um, worry And then on the other side, Americans are really on average open to the the cultures and the work ethic that immigrants bring. So as much as sometimes at the political sphere you hear some pretty strong anti-immigrant attitudes, there is a lot of acceptance of of immigration and and immigrant diversity and seeing um, that diversity as a strength in the United States just like it is often seen as a strength in Canada. So in public opinion, there, there's a lot of parallels on a lot of different grounds.
0: So you mentioned partisan politics and, and the political discourse. So we've talked about uh, a lot recently, of course, uh, well, since 2016, about Donald Trump and the type of populist politics that has become uh, very influential in the United States, especially within the Republican Party. So Can we expect that Canada might witness uh, the the rise of a similar movement, similar type of right-wing populism that can lead to exacerbate anti-immigration sentiments?
1: Right. So if if you're asking me whether Canada would elect a Donald Trump, I don't think so. Uh, But I have to admit that I was among those who did not think that Donald Trump would be elected president of the United States. So my crystal ball is not particularly good but I don't think so. And and let me tell you a little bit about why. So at one level, like I just said, Canadian public opinion is not dramatically different than U.S. opinion on a number of issues related to immigration. So if you only looked at public opinion, you could imagine potentially a scenario where those who are the most worried about immigration or or those who have the strongest nativist feelings would support an anti-immigrant politician or a populist politician. But I do think that there are some fundamental institutional differences between the two countries that just make it much less likely that there would be a Canadian Trump. And you know, it's, it's really this institutional side that might protect Canada, though I also do think there is that cultural difference among political leaders that I've already spoken about. Um, So on the institutional side, you know, as as you know, Danielle, the United States has a primary system. And that means that the people who are chosen to represent the Republican or Democratic Party have to be elected by a group of voters. And those group of voters are not representative of the general voting public. And they're certainly not representative of the general public, including those who don't vote. And the the fact that there's a primary system has been pulling both parties and especially Republicans to ideological extremes. So the people who actually show up to, to vote for the primary candidates tend to be more extreme. But it's not just that because if it was only like choosing extreme candidates they would then lose in the general election. Another issue in the institutional makeup of the United States is that very few districts in the United States, especially at the federal level are competitive districts. And by that, what I just mean is that they change party hands from one election to the other. You know, Canadian politics is really interesting for how much the party, sort of, the, the dist- ridings can change. Um, you know, there are, of course, some safe ridings in, in the Canadian context, but you see swings between the different parties in, in Canada. Whereas in the United States, legislatures have managed to gerrymander the districts, that means draw the districts in such a way that they almost ensure that one party will win every single time. And so they draw these crazy borders around the voting districts to ensure a particular outcome. And so what that means is even after these ideological extreme candidates have been chosen to be their party representative, there is no real competition or there's no real general voter ability to stop them from then winning in a general election. And then if we wanna layer on a third institutional layer that makes Donald Trump a possibility in the United States, you just have to look to the electoral college. Under the electoral college, the, the states that elect the, or the the way the president is elected is skewed to more rural voters and less populous states. And I don't know if Canadians know this, but both of the last two Republican presidents, Donald Trump and George Bush, both of them won the presidency, even though they lost the popular vote. And you know, that's crazy. So there are they have millions of fewer voters than their democratic rival, but they still managed to win the election because of the electoral college. So for all of these reasons, I think you have more extremism or the potential for more extremism in the United States. Now that said, I do want to acknowledge that the Canadian system also skews results, right? So in the Canadian system, because of its first past the post system, even if the Green Party, just for an example, wins 10% of votes across the country, And so one in 10 Canadians would really want the Green Party represented in the House of Commons. The Green Party never gets close to 10% of the seats in the House of Commons. You know, they're, they're delighted when they're able to win one or two. So there's often skews in the Canadian system as well. But ridings in Canada are much more competitive. There's no outrageous gerrymandering like the United States. And so the mainstream parties with the best chances for forming government have to play to the middle in a way that you do not see with the United States. And I often use the example of the Reform Party, which some of the older listeners listening to this podcast might remember. And when the the Reform Party started in the 1980s with Preston Manning, they had a pretty strong sort of anti-multiculturalism, maybe not quite anti-immigrant, but definitely immigrant restrictionist policy. They did not want very many immigrants. They were very worried about cultural and demographic change. But as that Reform Party changed to become the Canadian Alliance and then changed again and and absorbed the Conservative Party, Stephen Harper, who had been with the Reform Party at the very start, changed somewhat his stance and became much more supportive of migration. And actually, under the Harper government, levels of immigration were quite high relative to many other countries in the world. And so you see this sort of move to the middle because of the Canadian political system. And then of course, because of a lot of immigrant origin voters who, who are not very interested in supporting anti-immigrant politicians.
0: Well, thank you very much, Irene. We're already out of uh, time, but it was a fascinating uh, conversation. That was Irene Blumrad, uh, professor of sociology and the uh, Thomas Garden uh, Barnes Chair of Canadian Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. Irene will also be a speaker at our upcoming conference on immigration policy happening on October 27 and 28 uh, in Montreal. For more information about the conference and to register, please visit mcgillca slash 2022 conference To learn more about the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, our academic programs and our public events, please visit us at mcgillca MISC. Follow us on Twitter at MISCAN, M-I-S-C-C-A-N. And of course, subscribe for more episodes of our podcast, Close Up on Canada. Thank you to our producer, Blair Elliott, and the rest of the staff here at MISC. And thank you for listening. À la prochaine.